Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We have a big panel discussion show for you today. The first time in a while that we have assembled one of those. Starting with America First, with my co-host and the administrator of Casebook.org, Allie Ryder, followed by best-selling author of the books The Bank Holiday Murders and Ripper Confidential, Tom Westcott, and moving across the Atlantic to researchers Susie Huntington, Jonathan Ty, and Urian Masson, all here to discuss a previously unknown local man and nasty character living in the east end of London named Edward Buckley. Welcome to the show, everyone. Hello. Hi. Urian and Jonathan's research over many months is now available to read in the first issue of Crime Through Time magazine and as an 80-page dissertation on jtrforums.com. And Jonathan Ty presented at this year's East End Conference, and the talks from that event should be available here shortly via RipperCast. So, uh, guys, um, either one of you or both of you um, together, kind of please explain to our listeners how this work on Buckley began and how how you all got together. And also go ahead and throw in who Edward Buckley was, what might make him a person of interest to Ripperologists. I came across Edward Buckley whilst looking at the period before 1888. So I've become very interested in, what, I suppose, the, the genesis of the, this killer, this individual. And like everyone else, I've sort of become enthralled in searching the archives and using the geneal genealogical sites as well as the newspaper archive to, to, to see anything that could be a trigger event or an interesting event that could then lead on um, to, that, to that killer in 1888. I don't consider myself um, an expert in, in, in 1888 because there's so many of you out there. So my, my game was to make myself an expert of that period before. Um, I consider myself a historian. So from the, the, the historical side, the actual, the fact that the Ripper murders throws a lovely light upon um, the events in Whitechapel um, in, 1880, um, in the 1880s, it brings up some fascinating stories. So I come across Edward. What drew me to him was um, the two principal attacks that, that he got involved with. So first of all, I can't remember if it was the Sparex Row attack that I, that, that I found him on or the Devonshire uh, uh, Street attack. But what happened was uh, I looked at those, those events, cross-referenced him with Ali's site, the Casebook site and um, other sites and found that only one person that had looked at him before, a, gen a great researcher called Chris Scott. So I looked at what he'd flagged up and he said that this particular attack might not be of Jack the Ripper, but it's it's the type of attack you might expect to see from an early or a, an evolving Jack the Ripper. So it got, it got me interested and then I started to build the picture. And I, at first I, I, I tended to work alone and I was quite selfish. Uh, I kept him very much to myself and built a picture, built a, a history of him together, looking at the newspaper archives and found that, that he was very well sourced and documented. And then there's about, Durian would probably tell you about six, seven months ago, Durian put a request out on um, the uh, our Ripperology Coven site here, a Coven site, which has just got a few members asking to uh, for a, how to get in touch with the, I believe the Leavesden Asylum for records. And I kind of guessed something was going on at that point. Um, I offered him the details for a gentleman called Martin Brooks I'd already contacted and explained that the records in this particular asylum had been lost due to flooding and the fact that the NHS uh, took it over in the post-war and, and, and more or less 
uh, destroyed the records. And I said, oh, by the way, I've been looking at this particular gentleman. And then Durian said, oh, my God, we're looking at the same chap. And then from that moment of, uh, onwards, we really accelerated the work massively uh, in a very short period of time. And we've built a biography from birth, life and to his very end, which is an interesting story in itself. In terms of the suspect side of things, it's out there for people to make up their mind. That's what we've tried to do. We've presented the research. It's for people to decide if they think this guy is a viable or an interesting suspect. Your first, going back to your first question, who who he was. Um, during, I don't know if you want to give him a give an insight of who he was and who this this Irish Londoner, his background, and then you can just explain why we found him of interest. Sure. Um, uh, first of all, let me uh, uh, add to the uh, discovering bit. I, I was really not researching anything in regards to the Ripper case as such, uh, but I was uh, doing uh, uh, another one of my uh, probes into a Mary Kelly type individual. Uh, got to uh, a woman named uh, Mary Jane Shia, I think, and, and happened upon, purely by accident, uh, upon the Sparrow's Row uh, attack in 1884. Uh, so uh, that got me interested. Uh, that's the, I don't know, the, uh, uh, the the teenage side of me, you know, wow, a suspect. Uh, but um, I, I, I quickly uh, did some extra research and, and uh, just found probably what Jonathan found earlier uh, is a series of uh, attacks against a certain uh, prostitute uh, named uh, Frances Jones which uh, incited my interest uh, even more. Uh, what uh, we found out about uh, Edward Buckley uh, was uh, that he was of the uh, um, uh, Irish immigrant community in London, in the East End. He um, um, had uh, a, a great network there, of course, of family and, and acquaintances and friends, pretty much keeping to themselves, uh, like uh, people say about the uh, immigrant Jewish uh, East uh, European Jewish community, I uh, quickly also um, uh, uh, realized uh, that the impulse of attaching uh, meaning to Buckley in regards to the uh, Whitechapel murder case uh, is a little bit too too much of a honey trap, you know. Uh, I mean, you, you you can pull all kind of things. He could have done it. He couldn't have done it. Um, and that's why I think uh, the uh, many uh, Ripper calls I listened to featuring Chris Scott helped to ground me in that respect because he really wasn't interested in, in suspects uh, at all. By the way, uh, a suspect is, is someone who is at some point being suspected, but there is no uh, contemporary or a near contemporary reference to uh, Buckley being suspected by any senior uh, police official. Um, so um, uh, you can't even call him a suspect. He's not a suspect. He's someone uh, we found by accident and uh, did some further research uh, on, and in the spirit of Chris Scott, um, uh, it, it's the methodology uh, that counts, and, and uh, uh, which was for me personally, a exercise in uh, doing research, uh, going into the archives, finding things. Uh, that was for me, the methodology of, of, of looking uh, at information uh, from a, a dispassionate uh, point of view. So you know, without um, attaching uh, a, a certain meaning to it, which goes beyond the facts themselves. First of all, you know, I want to congratulate you guys on on kind of a, a, a mammoth project here. I want to 
kind of go back to some a couple things you mentioned um jonathan uh ty and i think this is key here the sparrow row attack from 1884 caught your attention and i liked what you said and i completely agree with you that the events of that attack as described in your research kind of point to the kind of individual jack might have been four years before the murders you talked about an evolution now here's my question as you researched edward buckley from 1884 moving forward in time and you do you go decades into the future did you see him evolve? Did you do you feel that Edward Buckley evolved beyond that brute force attack of 1884? In short, yes, I do. Um, I, I I think that the attack in Devonshire Street the following year, in which he locks himself in the the room in number number five in the in the which we believe to be a brothel, that it, the fact that he he closes the door behind him, the state of the room that's found by the the PC that that is in attendance, the fact that there's potentially two weapons involved, a knife and a, a poke or a broken stick, how that's described, the the scarring to the face of um, of Francis Jones, which we produced an illustration for, um, and that that illustration was given to an artist that had no preconceived ideas or no knowledge of the Ripper murders she read the report that we were able to provide and then drew, drew the scarring or the injuries on the face i think that that really does show that that evolution but um it's how he then proceeded thereafter um into 1888 which you know which when we started was a was was a bit of a blank canvas but um i do see that particular event that occurred a year later um in the in the october as being a development, and, and that's three years before the actual um, the Ripper murders. The, in, in terms of his, because um, he had a number of incarcerations and, and in prison, and prison time, if you look at a timeline of a timeline of events going back to to Sparrick's row and possibly a little bit before, uh, there's something going on, and we, we I think we we kind of touch we're touching on it. We're almost finding out what's at the heart of the. The, the matter, so to speak, that, that, that the, the 1888 period could potentially fit within that sequence because it's only broken up by incarcerations. And we know that he attacked again in, he attacks her again in May 1888, right in plump in the middle of that period. But what's for people to decide is whether or not, um, if we're looking at an escalation, if we're expect, are we expecting him um, to attack always more aggressively on each occasion or can an attack be controlled or is it limited on on occasion i don't know and that's i'm not an expert on that but i do think that you can see a continual path of events from 18 early 1884 actually going back even earlier to to the um there was a there's an incident in in fashion street which he, he's potentially the victim of or, or supposedly the victim of which shows his violence and it's it's just the continual uh, pattern that takes us up to 1888 and then we have this great mystery of what happens after August 18 the end of August 1888 because we can pick him up again in um, 1889. I'm going to disagree with that assessment of escalation because for one he has a pattern of violence against a specific woman who he clearly sees as some sort of 
domestic partner, however it was described at the time or how, you know, I'm not going to try to assume their relationship, but clearly like all of his violent female related attacks are against a single um, woman. That's one issue that I have with this, not saying that, you know, it can't be generalized, but, um, and then two, it's not an escalation because he went from attacking Francis Brown. I'm going to, I also have an exception to the artist rendering because you can give an artist, you can give five different artists the same description and they're going to come up with a different interpretation of what that written description is when they translate it to a visual description. So I don't sort of like speculative uh, speculative evidence like that is not my jam, but he went from, you know, a facial attack that was pretty severe and violent to more in my mind, tentative, it would have to be a more tentative attacks on the initial canonical victims. So I disagree with it being an escalation as perceived in the record of his crimes. But also I was talking to Yuri and I believe when we were just discussing this, I was like, this is a man who got caught for literally everything he ever did. Like there's not a crime. This man, like he got caught for obscenity on the streets. Like he, he literally can't get away with anything. And I just, it's not that I think Jack the Ripper is this swirly top hat coated fog shrouded mastermind criminal, but he was slightly more stealthy than a man who literally got popped for <laughs> just everything, everything. Like, was there a crime this man committed he didn't go to jail for? And so, I mean, I just, I don't see that escalation that you do. I just, I don't see it to me. I see isolated things where you could go, this is similar, but I definitely don't see the progression that you do. I think uh, the progression um, is not so much in the uh, the violence escalating, uh, which you would expect like a uh, a person of interest, uh, you know, to uh, to follow, uh, but more uh, uh, a pattern of um, uh, continuing uh, insanity, actually, uh, for which he was finally uh, committed to an insane asylum or several insane asylums later on in the from the 19s on uh, the 90s onward the 1890s onward so not so much in the violence spectrum but more in the uh, well let's say mental health uh, spectrum uh, that he, where he first gets away with this kind of um, uh, uh, behavior uh, later on he does not uh, uh, get away with this behavior and is actually incarcerated uh, not just in in you know goals or prisons but in insane asylums where he belongs. So I agree to some extent, uh, but, uh, and, and also uh, the argument that uh, the Ripper or the Whitechapel murderer stopped after Mary Kelly or, or one of the others, and then either committed suicide, uh, got incarcerated, or, um, or, or got uh, uh, incarcerated within an asylum, also flies in the face of uh, uh, Buckley as a suspect. So there are uh, uh, lots of arguments to say uh, that uh, Buckley does not fit what we believe or think uh, that the Ripper uh, would have done, would have went. So it's, 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 I agree entirely with your point. Also, uh, the um, descriptions about the scarring of Francis Jones in 1885, which we had an artist uh, uh, do a rendition of or a reconstruction of. Uh, yes, it is um, uh, an interpretation by an artist, literally an artist rendition. But um, 
uh, if you look or just read the descriptions, uh, they are pretty solid. I mean, it's, uh, it's a cut starting at the bridge of the nose, going down uh, via the left cheek and uh, towards the and ending just above the uh, left jaw. So uh, that's, I mean, that, that's pretty solid, I think, in the purely in the descriptions without the whole artist rendition uh, stuff. Before yeah, we uh, go go on, I just want to flesh out a, a, just a slight uh, a bit more about um, his biography for our listeners who may not um, have read the article or the material posted to JTR forums. Um, this is a guy whose first arrest came in his early 20s for pickpocketing. And throughout his criminal career, he often operated with a gang. Seems like all several of his subsequent arrests were with in, in tandem with um, a, a Irish street gang. Basically, is what we're talking about in the East End. There, drinking, getting into brawls, attacking police officers, robbing and pickpocketing, and seemingly um, only targeting other men for. Rob the robbery parts, at least the ones he was busted for, should be noted, all throughout his his life, seemingly, until by the 1890s, he was exhibiting enough signs of mental illness, probably due brought on by the alcoholism, to have him committed to an asylum. Um, so we're talking about in almost like a stereotypical late Victorian um irish gang member in a way very violent drunk all the time disrespecting authorities beating up cops for no apparent reason and then being also arrested for these horrific incidents of what ali has i think rightly described as domestic assaults against um francis jones so that that's i wanted to get like just paint a little bit more of a picture for our listeners of what the type of guy he was. He wasn't your loner, you know, he wasn't the stereo, you know, a guy with a bolt house that no one knows where he lives, sneaking out in the middle of the night, going back. This guy, as was mentioned earlier, had associates, was apparently uh, in a gang that's members kind of changed throughout the years, including his brother, right was in and out of um these criminal activities he was involved in so anyway on, on the on the previous point about the escalation is that does there actually have to be evidence of escalation in the previous decade in order for somebody to be regarded as a suspect in 1888 no um and i don't think that there does because we're, we're, we're again getting into a into the danger zone of, of of a narrative that was possibly not there. I'm not saying I have very mixed feelings about, about Buckley as a potential suspect. I think he's a fascinating character. But the man, from the evidence that, that uh, Jonathan and Jeroen have, have uh, produced, it is a man that's going in fits and starts, in ebbs and flows. And I don't think that that necessarily excludes him for consideration for the the murders that happened in 1888. I, I I totally I totally agree see, with what Susie's just raised and uh, and the narrative there's a, there's a number of issues that have come from what you've said so far in terms of your feedback. So with regards to yourself, uh, Ali, the, the you've almost 
I'm not saying you've fallen into a trap, but you, you, what you've done, if you read the press reports for this particular gentleman, it's the press that do the lead that he is in some kind of domestic, having domestic issues. And it often is a way of deflecting from the, the seriousness of these treatment of, of Francis Jones. We don't, we don't actually know um, if, there, if, if he was what they would call in Victorian times, I suppose, a, a bully, a pimp, and that Francis was someone that he controlled, uh, uh, in a sense, in, in a similar way maybe to my, uh, Kidney and um, Stride, but it's presented almost as if it's a relationship. It's a way of deflecting from the actual nature of the violence, which is why some of his the sentencing for the, the, the activities he carried out on, uh, there was a savage beating in a pub, he got, I think he got four weeks for. Um, so th there's that aspect. And there's a comic aspect also to the latter part of his life because of his behavior because of the chronic alcoholism so there's there's that aspect but in terms of what the other the, the American Jonathan has just said if I can call you the American Jonathan we, it's clear that you're all working from a basis of a, a, like a serial killer profile so the thing you said about he doesn't have a pond house that he can go back to on his own so so you're already your your thoughts and your thinking are that a gentleman like Edward Buckley who might have gang that might be involved with a gang could not have carried these attacks out because he's not a loner, he's not living alone because we all because we all agree that he's got to have that profile. Well, no, 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 no. I wasn't suggesting that that he he. I wasn't suggesting that he he is counter to any kind of profile. I was just kind of uh, mainly more for the sake of our listenership, painting a a better picture of him. Because I have a feeling a lot of a lot of folks who might envision a late Victorian serial killer, Jack the Ripper type figure, wouldn't imagine them having like being arrested all the time, like with a group of associates. You know. and hold on, and to, and to also clarify, I do not believe in profiling at all. I think profiling Good. is junk science. <laughs> I think it's absolutely junk science. I have said it it's multiple not, times in multiple ways on multiple shows. But what I mean in terms of it being a domestic situation, do not ever misunderstand me that I think a domestic violence situation is in any way less offensive than a stranger attack. I was saying it, it was a domestic situation in that he has repeated instances of violating one specific woman, as opposed to a history of violating a multitude of women in that way. So when I am saying it is a domestic situation by whatever definition, of, like so I even said, by whatever de definition of their domestic relationship was, it is different than this person has a repeated history of attacks against multiple women as opposed to there was this one woman he was in a not saying it's less terrible and right. to me honestly the whole uh psychology and behavioral about that whole surrounding domestic situation was interesting to me in terms of reading it because it's the she didn't want to testify his family kept her away like all of those kinds of things that psychology of of domestic violence i found interesting in seeing the parallels between history and present but that is my meaning by it was a okay. domestic situation as in a targeted attack against one woman repeatedly as yeah. opposed to repeated multiple offense against a variety of women that is i just want to make it clear i do not you know, oh, it was just a domestic little right. squabble between, you know, that that was not my intent. 
No, you know, you've made that clear, but the, uh, a question I can quickly put back to you then, and what I don't want to do is look like I'm riding the Buckley horse and, and I'm going to, whatever arguments come back, I'm going to come back with something for the sake of it. But what I would put to you is what if that situation you've summed up very well, that situation with this individual is at the heart of what causes his, his wider behaviour that we that we cannot prove, just like you can't prove that anyone else is Jack the Ripper. There's no firm evidence for anyone. So we know what we're dealing with what ifs. But one of the key aspects of this relationship, uh, what Durin and I found early on, early on is that there is an inability of Francis to carry a child. And that was at the very beginning of that sequence of events in 1884, she'd lost a child. So Whereas big assumptions here going on that, firstly, that he, he was the father of this particular child, but that inner anger, inner anger, because it certainly, there was a sequence of events that, that happened thereafter, you know, trying to break into the coffee shop, the coffee house, then assaulting a pub, then driving a, a fork into a back. Is that related to this frustration about pregnancies? And going straight into 1888 in the May, when he's uh, tackled by the policeman, he's, his words are, I've done time for her before, I will do time for her again. He's a very, very angry man. And his attitude towards unfortunates, I, I don't like the word, I hate the word sex work, I hate the word prostitute, because these, you know, it's, 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 not, it's not nice for these women who've had to go through a lot of things to, in their lives to keep themselves going. But he, he's disdain, you know, why, why pull me up? Why arrest me for a brass now? That was his attitude. So you've got an individual that we don't have to debate upon whether or not he liked prostitutes. He clearly hates prostitutes, but he does keep their company. Why is he keeping their company? Is he a pimp or is he a user of prostitutes? But he, he doesn't regard them. So there's not many other suspects you can say that are in company of prostitutes and we can prove it, that has attacked a prostitute, we can prove it, and has an attitude that they are not worth anything. You know, he's different in that way. And that's what caught my eye. That's what drew me into the story. Um, and a lot of the arguments I'm seeing in terms of the, the interview I did with uh, Richard Jones, the feedback, a lot of people, people have got these blinkers that, and I love what you said about serial profiling. It's not an exact science, but it's it's being used to justify, well, it, it can't be him because he's he's not a loner. He doesn't, he, he, he doesn't live alone. He's not, he's not unassuming. He's got a criminal record. I mean, I had a I had a bizarre argument with an an, uh, a, an individual that Susie was certainly know the other day regarding regarding this and the, the way he's justifying his own suspect is because he's done nothing else. That 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 could mean anyone could be the ripper. I, I was I was going to say as well with this. One of the interesting aspects for me is the fact that we don't hear anything at all from Francis Jones after May eighteen eighty eight. Now. That is currently the situation, and this may very well change. But if, and it's obviously a big if, underlined with sparky bits all around it and flashed at you, um, if uh, she passed away shortly after May 1888, that could, could, cautious, could be viewed as a catalyst for the kills in the autumn of 1888. That's an excellent point, Susie. And I want to touch on something Jonathan was talking about earlier, Jonathan Mingus, uh, when he was kind of giving a summing up, a, a summing up of Edward Buckley, he talked about his 
belonging to gangs. We talk about loners. The reality is whoever Jack the Ripper was, he did not live in a vacuum. He lived amongst other people. He did evolve as all of us evolve in certain ways. I personally believe Jack the Ripper came was a criminal. Uh, and I, what I do is I look at the murders and my spidey sense kind of kicks in. And I do believe he would uh, garrote the victims, put his arm around them, choke them to unconsciousness. This is a move common among robbers, pickpockets, criminals. If you're a criminal in the East End, you aren't a you don't work alone. You're going to be affiliated with other criminals on some level. Um, if we look at police suspicions after the murder of Polly Nichols, the press, the police really zeroed in on these slaughtermen uh, who lived nearby. But prior to that moment, who were the police looking at? They were looking at criminals who belonged to gangs. Um, the literature was full of it. I talk about it in my books. I'm fascinated in the pre-Nichols era of the Whitechapel murders. And the common theme is what they, you know, where did Jack the Ripper get his name? High Rip Gangs came in the press. Then someone writes a letter, Jack the Ripper. So whoever Jack the Ripper was, it's exceedingly possible, if not likely, that he had a criminal history. This criminal history would have absolutely involved him getting arrested on occasion. That's almost avoidable. No one is superhuman, certainly no criminal. That's part of their learning process is by screwing up, getting caught, and learning from that. Whoever Jack the Ripper was, was able to, he was very familiar with the East End. He was able to evade police, evade capture, and yet wasn't so frightened by the prospect of it that it made him back away. I mean, look at the Hanbury Street murder. He goes with his victim to the back of a house with windows overlooking it. In or order to escape, he's going to have to go back through that narrow passage and risk that it might be clogged with people who are hearing screams. I mean, this, there's a confidence level here. So whoever Jack the Ripper was prior to the murder of Polly Nichols, I think we are kind of looking at someone who was operating not saying he was he was in a gang at that time, but yeah, there ha there, there has to be that element in his life, I think, to give him the skills that we see him use on the victims to lure them into compliance, to render them unconscious, to prevent the screams that would have led to his capture. And of course, he was comfortable with a knife. Uh, Susie hit on something earlier. It's like, do we want to impose some kind of, like they have to have some criminal evolution before 1888? And that's a great point. I think whoever it is did, but that doesn't mean it's documented. That doesn't mean they were captured. But if we look at Martha Tabram's murder, who the police at the time, almost to a man, believed was the Ripper. And we look at the evolution in a very brief period of time from the Tabram murder to the far more confident Nichols murder. That's clear evidence right there of, of a significant evolution over a relatively short period of time. And is it possible... Martha Tabram was his first victim? Yes, it absolutely is. Is it possible she's not? And therefore the ones before that would look different and would not necessarily have resulted in kills. Yes, that's extremely, extremely possible. Now, in the case of Edward Buckley, all of these things were in my mind. None of the stuff that, you know, some people are saying should exclude him should exclude him. If anything, it kind of puts him in frame a little bit. But Here's the thing. What I'm reading about is is a is an alcoholic and and I will also point out Edward, you know, uh, Edmund Reed, what did he say? He thinks the Ripper is someone who frequented a certain bar or bars. 
well, I would assume as an alcoholic, Buckley would have probably uh, been found in a lot of bars and he had his favorites and they would have been in the East End of London. That's curious. But Buckley is, he's a drunk, petty criminal, um, domestic abuser. And that was the hardest thing for me in reading this. For some reason, I can read about murders and, and not blink. But when I read about abuse to animals or, or, or domestic abuse to women, it's just, ugh. But and that's and there's just so everyone knows there's a lot of that in this in their piece. But it's like it, it's like there must have been a 10,000 guys like Buckley in the East End at the time who were alcoholics, criminals and and, you know, narcissistic wife beaters, so to speak. And then it kind of stops there. His story doesn't, uh, you know, wh where, you know, whoever the Jack the Ripper was. One thing I think all of us can agree on is he was confident with a knife. You'll notice I stopped short of saying possesses medical knowledge, although he very well may have. How does that fit into, I'm asking you guys, how does the confidence, the skill with a knife and possible anatomical knowledge, how does that fit into what you've learned about uh, Buckley? Not so much on the point of the skill with the knife, but, and again, I, I, I've said many times I'm mostly into Jack the Ripper because I, I am fascinated by the psychology of crime. And while I don't believe in profiling, like I think anybody who's still arguing now that, you know, a serial killer is a lone killer, like lone wolf type thing, they've clearly not studied any of the serial killers that have recently evolved from the most recent of the Gilgo Beach killer to you know, on down the line. But I do think there are certain small, like, I don't want to call it profiling, but like behavioral trends and stuff. And like to Susie's point where she was talking about, like, if Francis Jones died in May 1888, and that could have been a catalyst. In my mind, and again, I am purely speculating, and my opinion holds no more weight than anybody else's on the planet. But if it was this sort of seething, built up catalyst, uh, or you know, there was a catalyst and there was this, I would have thought that the, the wounds to Polly Nichols would have been more if it was like an explosion of pent up, because he went from one specific target to sort of generalizing to all, all of the category that represented his specific target. And if he had had that pent up rage, personally, my opinion only, I would have assumed there would have been a more explosive amount of violence on his first one because it would have been stoppered for quite a while. And he already had a knife attack to his ledger to, to build on. So I would have thought, my opinion only again, Polly Nichols would have been more intense. As far as the nice skills, I don't see Buckley having them other than he used it in, in, in attacks. There's a difference between using a weapon and being skilled with the weapon. In my, that's not even a, my opinion. That's just a fact. There, I could shoot somebody and shoot them eight times and miss every vital organ. I can use a weapon. That doesn't mean I have the training or the skill to use it effectively and and correctly. Ugh, that was that was not the right word. Good, well, I can't use it well, skillfully. I get there eventually. 
Well, so, uh, let so, me let, let me shortly. Uh, <coughs> sorry, Jonathan. Uh, uh, short, uh, shortly to um, uh, to uh, get into that point. It, it's it's a great question uh, because indeed we do not know. We don't have any idea what his skill with the knife was, apart from the Sparrow's Row and uh, and Devonshire Street's uh, attacks. Uh, the purpose of the uh, uh, dissertation on, on JTR forms is to really lay down all the facts. Just what we know about uh, our Edward Buckley, which which is difficult enough because there are a lot of Edward Buckleys walking around uh, the East End. Uh, so we really had to sift through uh, all kinds of things, connect things, cross-connect things, uh, um, uh, you know, slapping ourselves down uh, before reaching conclusions too fast. Uh, and that is really a question of methodology. So uh, what we intended to do was uh, get uh, as much facts as we could about the man, just facts, just what's documented. And then uh, out of that comes hopefully, which is our hope, uh, sparks enough interest in researchers uh, to continue that research. For example, uh, to uh, look at what Edward Buckley exactly uh, was do doing at those prisons. Did he uh, receive uh, like a special task? He was habitual enough, you know, he frequented uh, in uh, prisons enough uh, to get some kind of feeling with the prison system. So that could include, if I mean, if you want to take that track, uh, infirmary orderly or uh, something like that but we just don't know so, uh, uh, what he actually did there so it really is an appeal to researchers to you know uh, go get him go get more information on this guy especially those prison uh, documentations if they exist because we had a lot of trouble you know accessing those uh, so it's all uh, legitimate questions um, but uh, they are just questions we don't know enough to make a ripper connection directly. Uh, everything else is indirectly and leads to the speculative, which leads to classical 20th century ripperology, which hasn't done you know, uh, our field a lot of good, I think, and we moved on from that. So um, I would prefer people look at the facts, just the facts, and then uh, uh, research on, because what we have uncovered of the man is quite extensive, but not nearly as extensive as to couple that with a um, candidacy, a ripper candidacy. I just wanted to, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I would echo what Adrian is saying. Point. We, 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 we've got quite, there are periods that, that of darkness that we that can be uncovered. His time before 1880, he, he was already in his 20s. So there is a period there, what he was doing. He was a man that changed his occupation over over several times over a, a number of years. So he always gave, he gave different occupations. Um, picking up what, Ali, what you said about that attack on Polly Nichols, and this is separating Edward from it entirely. Um, you could say that there is a frenzied uh, release of energy in that attack on Martha Chapman. There's 39 stab wounds. Now, if in Bucks Row, the killer was disturbed by the approach of Charles Cross or Lechmere from the top of that road, that might explain the two slashes. So he wasn't able to exercise. So that you can dismiss that one or box that one up. I know what you're saying there, but you, you can see in that attack on Tabram, and I believe she was a victim of the Ripper or Rippers, that, that, that there's a frenzied attack that's gone on there, that, that a horrific attack could have been stopped in Bucks Row by the, the approach of footsteps at the top of the road. So that, that, that's that aspect. With regards to what Tom said about injuries and wounds, I continue to be confused. I'm not a medical man, 
over the nature of the wounds and all the victims. Uh, I veer between believing they're totally random slashes and, uh, uh, and frenzied attacks that we, you've got to remember, we're only getting, often getting newspaper interpretations of those attacks. And so whether or not they're by design, they go for the uterus, he's, he's a wound collector, or they're just uh, random slashes with knives. I don't, I, I would like someone to tell me that because I've never been able to categorically go this, they were that they were going cleverly with school work by design, or they were absolutely random. So that that's on that point, but that might be my lack of knowledge on that front. Well, I'll I'll jump in here real quick. Uh, you know, most knife murders, and I'm speaking knife murders in general, and the papers of 1888 to now are absolutely full of them. Are frantic more often than not, do not actually lead to the death of the person. Uh, and that's because it's harder than you think to kill a person with a knife, unless you know what you're doing. In the case of the Ripper, we, let's take Nichols. He has executed her. Uh, he silenced her. He laid her down. He effectively cut her throat in a mat matter that would have immediately led to death. And then after that, these were a means to an end. Um, he wasn't beating her up. Uh, he wasn't committing you know, brute force violence to her in the way that Edward Buckley did uh, Francis Jones, what he did was the killing was the means to an end and afterwards his curiosity took over. This was the, you know, the fantasy element that the whole point of this, there's a point to everything we do. In his case, why did he kill Polly Nichols? The, it, it's for what happened after her death. In the case of Tabram, it was panic. Um, but if you'll notice all the wounds were, where were they, where were they focused? Uh, the throat area. Uh, kill shot to the chest. This is a man who knows how to, who understood how to kill people and was now putting that into action. In the case of Nichols, he then lifts her skirts. And we don't know because a full autopsy was never performed. We do not know if she had her uterus. That's just, we don't know it. I talk about that in Ripper Confidential and speculate that she may not have. Um, that question was raised at the time and the coroner had not done a good job, had not done an effective job and did not know if she did or not. So we don't know that he was chased away by Lechmere or anyone else. Um, we don't know what else he did. We do know how that escalated uh, to Chapman very shortly after. We know that he would read the newspapers. Uh, Tabram's uh, inquest uh, ended and there was no suspect. Murder by person, persons unknown. With confidence, he went out and killed Nichols, killed uh, Chapman, and then again waited for the inquest to end, which took a long time this time. The next weekend... Uh, Stride and Eddowes are killed. That, that is not coincidence. That is someone standing back and going, what do they know? And then going out with more confidence than ever before and doing it again. In the case of Stride, we're talking in the pitch black dark, one cut to the neck, one single, and she's dead. This is exceedingly rare in knife murders, exceedingly rare. So yes, there is a confidence with the knife, a level of skill that whoever the Ripper was, he possessed this. Why and how, we we don't know. But that is in evidence. That's not speculative to say that because you don't get lucky that many times. One time you can't, not four, three, four, or five. So uh, when you look at... Now, having said that, Buckley's aim at Francis Jones may have and probably never was to kill her. He was, you know an exceedingly insecure person, just, you know, why else would you take out your frustrations on a person that way? But uh, that doesn't mean, as Jonathan was talking about, we see that in, in other cases where the person close to the serial killer isn't 
harmed or killed, but others die as, as a surrogate. Is that possibly the case? Susie's point, which I hadn't even thought of, but she's, she, you know, really in any depth until she brought it up. But yeah, you know, Francis Jones disappears from our known record in May of 1888. What an interesting date to disappear from the record. What happened to her? Could that have been an instigator? All these things are possible. The thing is, I have a certain spidey sense. And when I was reading about Buckley, that spidey sense just never went off. I'll say that for what it's worth. But I want to mention that uh, what I really loved about that 80-page uh, uh, essay that you wrote, and, that, and a lot of people are going to read this and go, why are they telling us about all these dead ends they ran into? You know, why are they, this is so annoying. And to me, I was like, oh my God, this is brilliant that you're doing that because as a researcher, and I'm not a skilled researcher, um, but as a researcher, most of what you run into are dead ends. And I knew exactly what you guys are doing. You were thinking of future researchers, preventing them, hey, hey, guys, you're going to stumble onto this and it's going to lead you here. Don't yeah. bother. We've been here. Here's what we found. Go back. Keep going down that road. And and I absolutely loved that about your work. It was very thoughtful. Um, and, and I also want to say it's amazing that you two guys happen to be researching separately the same guy at the same time and then you found each other and kind of joined forces which is brilliant um so yeah I, there was so much about the piece i loved in terms of the the research it took me back in time to when i was doing some of this stuff for myself um and 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 again i'm more of a you guys are more researchers than you are writers i'm more of a writer than i am a researcher so I always depend on those far more skilled than myself to come up with good stuff. And the Ripperology community just doesn't disappoint in that end. Um, what I want to applaud is that you guys zeroed in on this guy, Buckley, and said, we got to see what he's about. That is crucial to this case, and not just for potential suspect, potential victims, Um you know, and sometimes you you do a you know you 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 do a mad blunder like I did uh, in in Ripper Confidential, and that's okay. You put it out there, like with Bank Holiday Murders. One of the things I was doing is like I'm putting this out there. This is what I have so far, and I'm hoping Ripper you know Ripperologists get curious about it to carry on the research, and they've done that. One of the things I'm always hoping for is to be proved wrong. That's to me that's equally as important as being proved right, because either way it results in proof additional information we didn't have before that can better flesh out the picture that we're all trying to put together um and 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 it's victimology it's suspectology and it's you know just we learned a lot about the slaughterman on bucks row over the years we learned a lot about horseman you know the the cat meets man all this kind of stuff fills in the picture um but uh you know i want to jonathan kind of told us his story of how he cued on to Buckley and became curious. Uh, but Urian, in your case, how did that start? I, I wanted to know about the that for you. What was that first moment like that led you onto this guy? Well, yeah, um, as I mentioned uh, earlier, the, the, it was the uh, uh, Sparrow uh, Row attack, which I uh, which you was the first that, correct. 
Yeah, was the first confrontation uh, of me with uh, this Buckley character, this psychopath, which he was, uh, suspect or not. Um, uh, but it got me uh, interested enough um, uh, to, you know, to continue the research because of the stab in the abdomen with that pocket knife thing. Um, uh, and his reaction after being caught by this, uh, this police constable, uh, I'll knife you too or something to that effect. Uh, for which he got, uh, you what well, was it, nothing or uh, like 14 days of incarceration, I, I forget. Um, so that interested me also. It also uh, sparked my interest to investigate further um, the, um, uh, the court system. Why was someone, you know, uh, put away for two years for uh, attempting to steal a watch? Uh, but uh, got off in, in, in 14 days for, you know, uh, seriously uh, stabbing a, uh, a woman, a domestic or otherwise. So that, that was really an eye-opener for me for the, you know, savagery, uh, the, the, the savage nature of the, the uh, court system, actually, um, the justice system in total. But anyway, I, I stumbled upon that, and it did have some, you know, ripper-like connotations, which are, you know, too obvious to mention. Uh, but then uh, shortly after that, it's impossible not to discover the Devonshire Street attack, um, uh, which he actually uh, used a knife again on the same person, as Ellie pointed out rightly, uh, the same woman, and, uh, uh, you know, put that diagonal um, uh, stab wound on her, uh, on her face. So I thought this is a, a, you know, a particularly vicious kind of fella. Uh, so uh, uh, then uh, the research continued and I got led all astray because my only real interest in ripperology thus far has been Mary Jane Kelly and, and, and you know, researching possible avenues to hopefully someday find her. So this was really a, a sidetrack for me, uh, but I couldn't let it go. And after, uh, as you pointed out, the, the almost miraculous, you know, mutual discovery of, uh, of us researching um, Buckley together, uh, and finally joining forces in that, which was an enormous release, uh, relief because uh, Jonathan Tai is one hell of a researcher. Um, and uh, uh, then uh, the process became, you know, accelerated and uh, we were so Im emerged, immersed in this. Uh, my girlfriend's still angry at me, so I have a lot <laughs> of making up to do there. Uh, uh, but, um, uh, well, at, at, and then uh, our mutual, you know, uh, doing research together was, uh, was really excellent. The last couple of um, uh, weeks or, uh, or even months, I became a little bit agitated because researching uh, Buckley was really uh, more than I can handle. Um, uh, it was really, uh, regardless of any, you know, Ripper-related uh, thing, I, th I thought it was a very dark character by, in itself, in his own right. And um, I, I really had to, you know, had a hangover from that. So I'm really glad it's finished also so I can, back to, can get back to the real uh, research I was uh, intending to do. Let's go, let's go to um, Susie. Um, I know she's been waiting pati patiently to say something. Uh, well, what I was going to say is just reaching back to the idea of the Ripper being skilled or unskilled. I think... We have to be very cautious on the language that was used at the time and what was analysed as being skilled and not skilled. When you see these post-mortem write-ups, um, the, the pathologist, well, he's, he's not even really a pathologist because they're, they're effectively untrained, divisional surgeons, uh, GPs, they are um, looking to analyse cuts on a body that show evidence of 
the person having medical experience. And that means things like transfiction. That means a sort of slow, confident, cautious approach, a specific oblique angle with regards to how cuts are made, all sorts of very specific medically based trained injuries. And when you look at the, the the ripper kills, you're looking, you're not looking at that. You are looking, you may call them skilled, but they're not medically skilled. There's, there's a difference between being medically skilled and being confident in what they're actually doing. Um, and I personally don't see any evidence at all of there being any medical skill whatsoever in any of the ripper kills. None that's of fair. And that's why I um, use the term confidence with a knife as opposed yeah. to medical I'm, skill. I'm, as I say, I, I don't, I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you. I'm just saying. No, I think we're actually agreeing with each other. Yeah. I don't see a doctor at work in the ripper murders, but I see someone who has used a knife and is, this is the, they're comfortable with this. Yeah. This is the, and, and, and we see that in the murders, they can work quickly in dark difficult situations but nothing the ripper's doing is medical per se right but mm -hmm. there is he's confident with that knife in his hand and and there's a level of skill there now how he attained that we we can only guess at but mm -hmm. there there is practice and skill there but not medical skill and there is a curiosity evident in the murders with the human anatomy the female anatomy that's clear and and some of the stuff the ripper does but that does fall short of you know, surgical, methodical yeah. precision. Yes. But there's also this, with the regards to the emphasis on the abdomen, there is aspects of the Buckley brothers. Both Buckley brothers had been stabbed in the abdomen. Obviously, there's the Francis Jones stabbing in 1884. Um, so there is a precedent, if you want to read into it that way, if I'm... you choose to, <laughs> um, <laughs> that... that, that um, that there is with regards to Edward that there are abdom there is abdominal evidence, I suppose you'd call it. For that point, I would say if you're back in the 1880s and you're trying to kill somebody with a knife, there's basically two targets because you know hearts are by the rib cage. You could deflect off of a rib. You're either going for the throat or the or the abdomen in terms of where you're going to stab. Like most knife fights, if you look at prison knife fights, if you look at prison stabbings, it's all targeting an abdominal area you not all usually because those are the soft targets you're going to strike for your soft target so i think that would just be a matter of general thuggery like knowing where where are the targets that you're going to aim for um in my opinion the yeah. other thing tom did say though that i thought i wanted to agree with and and tack on to in terms of this is he, the primary motive for the ripper in my opinion was the postmortem mutilations like i be i do believe that 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 was his key psychological drive he didn't kill he didn't okay please understand what i'm about to say and don't take it wrong he did not kill them violently but he did mutilate them violently and for rip you know he didn't like like i don't agree that martha tabram was one because that was a, a frenzied mutilation uh while she was alive for quite a long bit of it um whereas most of the other the ripper victims were more as tom said they were sort of targeted choked out um and then the post-mortem mutilation was the driving factor 
for someone like Buckley, and again, not getting in a profile, but just getting into here is how he has behaved as we know it. He, when you're a domestic abuser, the murder, the post-mortem mutilation, it's the violence, it's the hurting, it's the it's the psychological torment, it's the the infliction of pain on the target that you have. They want to inflict pain on a living victim, whether that's psychological pain, whether that's physical pain, whether that's emotional pain, whatever. That is a driving base uh, urge. I don't know what the word I want there is. Whereas for the Ripper, that's why I said I would have expected it to be a more frenzied sort of experience if that if it were Buckley and he was using these women as his Francis substitute. I don't believe their deaths would have been, and again, apologies, but they wouldn't have been as easy. Wrong word. I know. I don't know how to appropriately say that concept without sounding like I'm an absolute ass, but I hope you all understand what I mean by that. Yeah, I think you make a very good point with that one. And I I, I totally agree with both of you that the, the object was not the kill, it was what, what occurred afterwards. But it's with, with regards to Buckley, again, it's understanding what if he if he was the, the killer, it's it's understanding what was at the heart of what his motivation was for those for those attacks. Um, but we, we spoke at the beginning of this did, before we obviously all came on air with regard to, to Jonathan saying about a lot of this is determined by our range of suspects and you raised it again there so you're you preclude, preclude martha tabram whereas i would would include her and and that can change the debate amongst all of us about wh where we see who the victims are um but in terms of what your point is there i do agree and i think we probably all agree that, that the, it's the object of what occurred after the kill so the, the idea was to subdue the victim as quick as possible and then is what what was carried out afterwards yeah, I, I don't think that would necessarily preclude him sorry i want to point out in tabram's case i do believe that like the later victim she was you know uh subdued as you mentioned and laid uh. down uh, they were inside of a living uh, uh, inside of a building in which people were living um at the time and who didn't hear or see anything which fits in with the later murders what is different is what happened after she was laid out on the ground his frenzied attack versus something more methodical uh, that is definitely different but again uh you know if you look at the murder of Polly Nichols in in isolation you no one can conclude this is the this guy's first murder it just doesn't make sense as such so you move back in time to Tabram and then back in time before that I do want to point out another thing that Buckley has going for them that I talk about in Ripper Confidential um is a pattern I noticed in the murders that that I that a lot of researchers prior to me saw as kind of inconvenient or or unimportant, but I I tacked onto as crucial was that in the case of Nichols, the appearance of rings missing from her fingers, in the case of of uh, Chapman, her ring rings were absolutely removed from her fingers prior to her murder. Uh, stride the Cassius in her hand, and then the thimble next to Edo's right hand, and and to me this was evidence that before they were rendered unconscious, they were robbed. And that this was part of his way of, of luring them into silence. If you're quiet and you give me what you got, you won't get hurt. That allowed him to move in close. Uh, he rendered them unconscious and then he did what he did to them. Um, and that would explain why their items were out of their pockets or missing from their fingers. But this is also, what who is this in keeping with? Uh, some fancy guy like Tumblety, in my mind, absolutely not. 
uh, it's keeping with a someone with a history of petty crime, someone with a history of mugging. That was he was comfortable with that because he'd done it many times. He'd witnessed firsthand in actual muggings that this works. These methods work. They get people quiet. They get them uh, compliant. You get their stuff from them. And at some point it clicked in his mind, I could do this and then take it one step further. And um, so someone who is a petty criminal, this is exactly who you would see committing these murders, but he, but he's intelligent. He's um, again, is comfortable and skilled in some way with a knife and he's intensely curious uh, brutally curious uh, about, you know, the female anatomy. So those are the extra layers added on. And those are the layers he would have kept private and to himself and that most of the people in his life wouldn't have necessarily known that. Uh, but yeah, anyway, so that's something else to where, uh, you know, some people who would disagree with me on these things might go, oh, no, no. Uh, whoever the Ripper was, he couldn't have been a petty criminal. He was, you know, some kind of brilliant genius or something like that. I don't agree with that at all. I think that if you just study the murders, just the crimes, what did he do? All the stuff that is inconvenient. You have to be innovative in Ripperology. You really do. You've got a you've got a great foundation from earlier researchers. You start there. You become familiar with that, and then you go. What are they not seeing? What are they missing? Or better yet, what are they discounting because it's inconvenient to them? And that's that's kind of how I approach my research and is like, you know, all these things that are so inconvenient that they're ignored or written off. I'm going to put those to the forefront and go, what do they tell me about these particular individual crimes and then collectively? And that's when it became clear to me these women were all mugged, all of them, with the exception of Kelly, because she didn't need to be. And what does that tell us about their killer? It's not just collecting facts and putting them on paper. You then do have to apply your imagination to make sense. What do these facts mean? A fact in isolation is nothing. You have to add meaning to it. And in the case of Buckley, when I was reading your work, uh, actually, Susie's done a phenomenal job here talking about the uh, the abdomen, and uh, that didn't uh, uh, occur to me, but she, she's not wrong. However, in the case of Jack the Ripper, he didn't attack the abdomen he he's more he renders them unconscious via the throat he then cuts their throat uh they are then down the abdomen is not the point of attack like ali was saying common thugs or whatever if you're trying you know you're in a knife fight or something you're going to go for the 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 soft targets um, but that's not what the ripper did he was able to get himself behind them there was a certain level of putting them at ease to me it's key that if you look at the papers, who were the papers telling these women Jack the Ripper looked like? They were giving them leather apron. So whoever Jack the Ripper was couldn't have looked anything like leather apron, or I don't think he would have been as successful. What was your, what was your opinion, Tom, when, um, obviously, because you've got quite uh, a uh, refreshing view on the Emma Smith murder compared to the sort of the traditional narrative, you know, of the 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 gang and what have you what was your reaction when you read Buckley about Buckley and the the gang aspect there well I don't believe that Emma Smith was murdered by a gang and the reason is because in uh, Edmund Reed believed she was not murdered by a gang 
and he knew a lot more than I know, and so I am not going to disagree with him. Uh, uh, Reed, who investigated that murder, went to the spot where Emma claimed she had been attacked, and he found no blood. And I think that informed him that he was that that he uh, he wasn't being told the truth, or that I should say the doctor at the hospital had not been the, told the truth by Emma. Emma went into the hospital believing she would survive her wounds, and she didn't wish to be arrested. So she wouldn't tell the doctor that I was soliciting to a man who did this or that I knew the man who did this to me because then she'd face repercussions when she got out of the hospital. Instead, she invented a group of you know young people, one of whom was 19, who attacked her at a location where she was, in fact, not attacked. And that's the story she told because, again, she believed she would survive her injuries and she did not. So all we were left with was the story that Reed for reasons we don't fully know other than the lack of blood at the scene reed did not believe that he believed she was killed by one man and that that man was jack the ripper and in the case of emma smith we see a very crude murder uh but it displays the the very same curiosity about the female anatomy that we see repeated over and over again after that i don't know that emma smith was a ripper victim i don't know anything actually let's just get that out i don't know anything uh, about anything but i have my ideas and one of those ideas is i wanted to be the first ripperologist to not disagree with the investigator in charge of the emma smith case and take on that and not agree with emma smith because she had her own motives to tell the story she did again avoid arrest avoid retaliation for telling on her attacker her own friend months earlier spent 21 days in the hospital by being attacked by a man and she didn't tell on him. Emily Horsnell was attacked by a man. She didn't tell on him. And uh, so, you know, that's the, that's a pattern you see of behavior. They knew this person probably they recognized him, knew him by name if they didn't personally know him. And yet, because they believed they would survive and in, in all, you know, and in only one case, did they, you know, they, uh, they lied. And so, I don't believe there was a gang that killed Emma Smith. Um, I believe it was a man, but I wouldn't be surprised if that man ran with a gang, worked with a gang. As you know from my books, uh, you have, what, three, four successive victims all att attached to two neighboring houses in George Street. Uh, this is Taberman, the victims that I outlined before that. I don't think that's coincidence. I think that's the richest ground for research. And you find a man there who who is associated with them, who has a history of violence and who something happened to at the end of 88 or beginning of 89. And then you have a good suspect. But I don't have a name to put to that. The uh, suspectology talk, I don't know, it would be um, very uh, apt for today because I think that it would double the length of our podcast, probably. Um, but there is a couple points that I did want to bring up. And if it ends up doubling the length of our podcast, then I feel bad for y'all. Okay, so uh, two things I wanted to mention. Um, whenever there's polls of Ripper suspects, one option is always the unknown local man. You have a couple folks choose Lechmere, a couple folks might do Druitt, one might do Tumble Tea, and then 30 or 40 will say unknown local man. So here we have Edward Buckley, I believe, is my memory serves the first 
quintessential unknown local man of the thousands that Tom rightly acknowledged existed at the time in the East End um, brought to light. And we've heard his history. We've heard that he frequents, he associated with prostitutes. We learned that he violently attacked a prostitute more on more than one occasion. We know he was put into an asylum. Um, he lived on Dorset Street, granted later on down the road when it was named Duval Street. He lived on Hanbury Street, right across from number 29 at number 14, I believe you guys said. He roamed around Commercial Street, Victoria, uh, Victoria's Working Men's Club, right? He, there you go, right? Unknown local man. People will dismiss him for whatever reason Jonathan Ty mentioned. Um, now, it might have to do with victim count. Uh, who do you in ex include and who do you exclude with the victims? Um, was Buckley um, around? Okay, so let's say May of 1888, hypothetically, Francis Jones dies. Emma Smith was attacked in April, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, um Emily Horsnell was attacked in November of 1887 when Buckley was locked up. So if a suspectologist believes that Horsnell, Emma Smith, and Tabram were related, and they also include Tabram amongst Jack the Ripper's victims, then they might just offhandedly dismissed Buckley because he wasn't around for when Emily Horsnell was attacked, right? Or or his wife hadn't, or I mean, sorry, or his Francis Jones hadn't have died. That was a month after um, M, um, Emma Smith was attacked. Uh, so as far as the precipitating thing, um, another guy on the Facebook message boards the other day uh, dismisses Druitt, Cohen, and Tumblety because he includes Alice McKenzie in, in the list of Ripper victims. Right. Um, so again, this could be a discussion topic for another time, but but I, I struggle to think of, of um, I mean, my favorite suspect, I'll admit it, is the unknown local man, right? How many, what thousands of unknown local men do we have to pick up? Does does Urian and Jonathan have to discover that checks all those boxes? And what are those boxes that all need to be checked for someone to be satisfied that that unknown local man, who's now not un unknown anymore, is possibly the Ripper, right? There's no consensus right. on that, and there will never be a consensus on that in Ripperology, right? Right. Um, no one and will so, ever agree. Like I, every time it's like case solved, I'm just like, oh, bless your heart. Because it's like no one, there is never going to be a consensus. But that's what we're not doing either. We, oh, we, no, 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 no. Yeah. We're, we're not saying that case closed, that that's not how we're presenting this at all, which is, you know, our idea is to say that this is, this is him. Right. Make a judgment. I think um, Jay, um, Jonathan makes a fantastic point about the suspects. And I even before I came on, I look back at Emily Horse now again, because you you have this whole range of people that could or couldn't be in the, in the mix. And it can affect totally where we go with the, with, with the case. And it, even the, 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 you know, the, the 1888 victims, the, the canonical five victims, whether you put them in, put them out, it could 
completely change the picture. So we have to be open minded. Um, my the work that I started was massively inspired um, and I'm not blowing smoke up his bottom Tom's work it because I think Tom's work was revolutionary it completely changed my mind on where we should be looking so I, I possibly went into the research looking for that unknown local because I, I agree with all the aspects that Tom has discussed and I still think that the the, the killings of 1888 were born and bred in Whitechapel from that thuggish background. So what we've done, what what, what Drew and I have done is presented that unknown man. But I, do you know what? I'm still going to keep looking. I'm going to still keep researching because that's what I that's what I do. Um, and Drew will go back to Mary Kelly and I will go back to looking at every report before 1888. And if there's someone else that comes along, but I personally believe that this guy this guy is a good, a good unknown. Uh, you know, when, when yeah. polls come up. Yeah. Right, and, and I agree entirely. Um, and uh, let me blow some more smoke up uh, Tom's ass. <laughs> um, uh, what, what he does, he 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 doesn't uh, reason from the suspect down. He looks at the uh, uh, the 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 the, uh, the facts uh, as far as they can uh, can be ascertained. And uh, in 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 the best case, you know, tries to reconstruct a, a ripper type. Uh, uh, a person, but not an actual, you know, name. Uh, could it be Druid? Could it, what else? He looks at what happened. He looks at patterns. Uh, yes, he speculates, but uh, in a reasoned manner. Um, and what uh, Jonathan uh, Mengus uh, told about the unknown local man, it, it was quite interesting in, in, in that context that uh, a uh, article or uh, rather a uh, letter sent in uh, from a uh, person calling himself an ex-convict who uh, really describes the unknown local man or even uh, Buckley in, 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 in many respects. Uh, so you saw that profiling, uh, even before Dr. Bond's uh, efforts, uh, was already going on by members of the public or even uh, uh, possibly by uh, reporters themselves, because I wouldn't exclude, you know, the, the Paul Mall Gazette. I, I wouldn't preclude them from, you know, inventing or writing some letters themselves uh, just to, you know, uh, pose as the public. Uh, but one of those uh, uh, mentions a couple of points uh, on which that and that low, that convict, ex-convict, uh, thinks uh, the police should should you know uh, focus their investigations, and he mentions the following: number one, the murderer is of the old fake criminal type. Well, there goes uh, yeah. There you can uh, uh, put a put a, a a positive for Buckley. Two, he belongs to or is very familiar with Whitechapel. Uh, number three, he has served a long term, perhaps many terms of imprisonment, some of which, uh, some or all of which punishment he attributes to the class to which the mur murdered women belong. And uh, number four, his previous criminal career makes him familiar with the beat system of the London police. He uh, ends with number five. He has been an infirmary orderly in some convict prison and he has recently terminated his last sentence. Well, uh, I think the first four points pretty much, you know, uh, can be applied to a Buckley type uh, uh, perpetrator. Uh, the fifth, of course, cannot be the infirmary orderly uh, bit. Uh, but you saw then the, the rough outlines of the unknown local man already taking shape in the minds of, uh, of uh, contemporary people, just uh, be it reporters themselves posing as people of the general public or the general public. 
so it's very interesting that you know that process of profiling or trying to uh, attribute uh, certain um, uh, certain aspects to that killer uh, was already forming, and this letter is dated shortly after the uh, the uh, uh, Stride and Addos murder, the double event. So I just wanted to mention that one. Uh. Yeah, and that was great. And I remember you shared that with me a while back uh, in in PM, and uh, and I was I was like, wow, <laughs> so, you know, that's one of the best ones I've read in terms of uh, from that era. Um, very reasoned and thought out, um, of course. You know, so disagree with it. <laughs> well, yeah, and I disagree, but it is reasoned and thought out. I disagree yeah. with some parts of it, but um, I disagree. I've always had an issue with profiling. Like back in the day, I'm old enough to remember when John Douglas was on TV all the time talking about how they never stop. Serial killers never stop. And I'm like, that doesn't make sense. These are human beings. They're not black and white and they age out of their testosterone and everything else. And now we know serial killers stop all the time. Mm -hmm. And sometimes abruptly, even when they're young. Now, in the case of Ripper, what what is different about Jack the Ripper versus the the famous serial killers that we all know about is that we're talking, you know, these murders occur within a very brief period of time, a handful of months, and then he he appears to have come on the scene and then disappeared uh, months later. But we know, you know, he didn't disappear. He, something happened to him, and and he had a life before the murders. So that does you know, make him, uh, and, and he did it all on foot inside of a square mile in one of the most populated uh, cities in the world, and and he never got caught. The hints, that plus the name Jack the Ripper is why people on three continents are sitting here talking about him today, you know, and, and uh, Jonathan, we all have our opinions on suspectology. I think most of the books that come out on Jack the Ripper are crap. Um, and I mean, like the vast majority of them are pointless and useless and stupid. And are you just... saying the Baphomet guide to what was? <laughs> no, that was good. That was good. I will say there was more creativity in, in what's her name's uh, book 15 years ago than in the last few. That the epiphany, epiphany of the White Chapel. Yeah. There, there was at least something to talk about there. In the last few books that come out, it's like. 75% Wikipedia just pulled from there, put in there, and then they write a chapter on their their lousy, lousy suspect, and there's no research. And one of them, the newest ones I read in the, uh, uh, you know, where she's crediting her research, it's almost entirely Trevor Marriott. And and so that was cute. But uh, <laughs> what Yurian and Jonathan are doing is actually, it's, it's bona fide research. Research, I, yeah. Well, and then they get and they get frustrated. Yuring talked about the frustrations, and I know that firsthand. And he also, you know, I know that there were moments where they were just over the freaking moon because they were like, "Oh man, we just found something we didn't think we could find." The the discovery that's the thrill. I'm what I'm doing right now is speaking to the future future researchers. Uh, there's the the thrill of discovery that keeps you going, but you also have to be willing to put your ass out there. Susie's gonna Susie's doing this. She's coming out with she has one of the most anticipated ripper related books of the last decade that's gonna have her name on it and it's gonna be put out there and she knows this and it's gonna be ran through the ringer, it's gonna be praised, it's gonna be she's gonna get slapped and have her ass handed to her and she's and I assume ready for that. <laughs> I hope it's way to freak her out, Tom. <laughs> like, what are you trying to discourage? You gotta take it all on board. You gotta be you gotta be not only, but here's the deal. 
you've got to want that like me. I put that out there and I know Edward Stowe and some of these other people are going to read it and they're out to get me. And that's great because in the process of doing that, they're going to research to prove me wrong. And that research inevitably turns up stuff I would never have found on my own. And I end up winning. I always end up winning. And that's how you got to look at it. Like Susie's going to put her stuff out there. A whole new generation who don't really know about the torso murders are going to be inspired by that. And they're going to go out to, to pick up her research, whether to prove her wrong or right. And they're going to find new things. And that's how, that's how this continues. It's perpetual motion. Talk about suspectology. I'd argue 90%, if not more, of all of us in the field entered it through a curiosity of who was Jack the Ripper. And I'm going to pick yeah. up this book. And that that is the lifeblood of Ripperology. That's why it's called Ripperology and not East Endology or 1888ology. And I will say, like, although I am bashing the concept of Butler being the Ripper, I will agree that the research displayed in this was top notch. It was absolutely excellent research um, from Jonathan and Urian. And I don't think that there's anybody who would dispute that um, on any level that it was fantastic research. I won't oh, get into the writing. Who, I don't know who okay. they are. But there's always people to dispute anything because there's a lot of weirdos in our field. But for those who know what they're talking about, they have to be impressed. Uh, I'm I'm jealous actually. Urine and Jonathan's research abilities, their drive uh, is far beyond my own, and uh, and I'm so glad there's people like them in this field. Just like thrilled that that keeps happening. But I, I have to say, with regards to to doing the the torso cases. Um, and again, it's going to sound like we're all backslapping one another. That that it was Tom's bank holiday murders book that was one of the big inspirations, just like what Jonathan and Urian uh, have said. Because I think we all have the same approach when it comes to actually, you know, looking at this this subject, which is, well, let's just move aside what we know. Let's move aside all this baggage that we've got and let's actually go back to the basics let's look at what the evidence says and let's see where the evidence takes us exactly uh, uh and and if it take it, the, the problem i mean it you know I'm, I'm preaching to the converted here but the the, the main problem with suspectology is that it's the opposite way around yeah is that the narrative overrides absolutely everything. So it's then all the evidence is crowbarred in to fit the actual given suspect. And what is so refreshing about the Edward Buckley aspect of things is that in, in, in many ways, he's actually, he's an anti-suspect. He's an anti-suspect suspect. Because of um, if he turns, I don't, I don't quite know exactly how to, to put it. It's um, That's the right way to put it. Yeah. yeah is it that... Your approach is, well, if it turns out that, that Buckley was incarcerated for the whole uh, of, of autumn 1888, he ain't the Ripper, you know, <laughs> it's, straight, it's, it's just the way it is. But the actual story, the investigation and the research stand up alone as part of the history of the East End and uh, it's essential research in understanding the dynamics of the the working and the subclass that actually existed in that area at that time. 
Right. Uh, I mean, Thomas, right. It, it's it, it's on the one hand, it's the spark, you know, that gets you into it, that gets you interested, etc. But then uh, we have to uh, move beyond uh, those impulses of only just excitement and, you know, slap ourselves on the wrist, question everything you almost deem uh, uh, like facts uh, at a certain time. You start speculating. It's very human. It's like the, the conspiracy theory. Everyone has a inclination towards it. And you have to pra practice self-discipline and self-criticism uh, to uh, suppress that impulse um, uh, in favor of the facts, that's which is very important and which is something Chris Scott really uh, put on the map, I think, and uh, which is something uh, Jonathan and I can only uh, aspire to, to that kind of, you know, objectivity. Our impulse control was each other. Um, so we would find there were a number of instances in our research where we found roads and because that road led to Mary Kelly, in one instance, we thought we'd found the Buckley we were looking for then we we had to re-examine what we've done and then we removed it because we found it to be not right and there's so many instances in our research where we could have made for a fantastic novel or story because of some of the connections we found we've got a we've got a buckley mary who could who played the perfect role of edward's mother that has her eye knocked out in 18 early 1888 in an act of violence but we we knew that our research has showed us that that was not 100% accurate to our Buckley. So we would we would basically rein each other in. Going back to what the whole essence of this Edward Buckley issue that that Susie raised is that as we as we are researching these individuals, there are some wonderful wonderful interesting stories that throw do throw up the you know the social history of Whitechapel, and, and that's where my passion is going. I touched upon it in the article, Adam's article, the story of um, uh, Alice Watkins and the murder suicide in Brushfield Street, which was just a few lines in that article. But I've you know I've been working privately on that. There's a big story there, and the Ripper murders enable us to throw a torch on that history. So. We all come in, just as Tom says, I came into this because who's the Ripper? Who, who was he? Where, what, what, who, is this, who is this killer? But the more you work on it and the more you know how futile to get that answer is, you're, we're uncovering these wonderful stories from, from, from Whitechapel that we never would have known about. We're, we're, we're able to document the lives of people that were statistics. Edward Buckley would not be known had it not been for Jack the Ripper, whether or, whether or not he is Jack the Ripper. But what a story, you know, what a, what a story of a complex, complicated, drunken East End individual that we've got there. And we know that man's story and we've documented it because of Jack the Ripper. Well, that's as good of a place as any to end the discussion. And um, it was a fascinating discussion, I thought. And we were joined by Tom Westcott, Allie Ryder, Susie Huntington, Jonathan Ty, and Urian Masson. They're, they're encouraging more research into this this shady character. It should encourage, I think, anyone who you know wants to start looking into other unknown local men. Whatever this is, this is what we have to do. Like was mentioned, kind of mentioned earlier. Um, whether he was Jack the Ripper or not doesn't ultimately make any difference. It's the research and and uh, discovering these individuals who lived in the East End of London at the time of the murders that we uh, hold to be the most important aspect of the case and, uh, and of Ripper studies. So I want to echo all of the uh, applause that you guys have been getting. We uh, might be back for another episode to hash out 
uh, why suspectology is a terrible thing, but nope. that we'll, we'll have to save that for another day. All right. So you guys are all welcome to come back. So. Oh, brilliant. Thank or you. if it is a terrible thing, not why it is a terrible thing, if it is a terrible thing. We'll start oh, with is. the premise that it is it a is. terrible thing. You have and to then, prove it's not. <laughs> and you'll have to prove it's not yet. <laughs> so again, all right. Thanks. Thanks again, everybody. It was Thank awesome. you guys. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.